It's six o'clock. Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, January 25th, 2018. Why do some people win and others lose in a court of law? Well, the simple answer to that is either someone defaulted or the evidence favored one or the other. What is evidence and how does it get considered in deciding a foreclosure case? Tonight we talk about hearsay and hearsay exceptions. Sounds technical, right? That's because it is technical. Everybody thinks they know what it is, but they only have a vague idea of hearsay and especially the way it is applied in uh, connection with exceptions to the hearsay rule. And that's why homeowners should always hire an attorney licensed in the jurisdiction in which their property is located because it is unlikely for any pro se litigant to actually understand and be able to use in discovery, motions in limine, objections, uh, cross-examination, to be able to use the knowledge of the rules and laws of evidence uh, or discovery without having had experience in multiple other trials. So get a lawyer. At least consult with one. 2018 is the year where I'm getting serious about homeowners winning their cases and making sure that those wins go public. Up to now, uh, many thousands, tens of thousands of homeowners have prevailed, but we have heard little about it, mostly because once they win, they end up entering into a settlement agreement in which uh, which is sealed by confidentiality. <coughs> so that means we all must wade into the weeds and get the details on procedure, law, and rules. I want to thank the many people who supported our last seminar on death of a salesman, what happens when the so-called originator goes out of business or into bankruptcy. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at our first webinar, which is now scheduled for February 16th due to technical difficulties. 
And that will be on evidence, discovery, objections, and trial strategy. And I will give you specific objections, uh, objections, uh, specific examples of making objections and doing cross-examination from a trial uh, I actually conducted, and I'll be giving you the um, transcript of that so you can see how it applies uh, in practice. And, yes, we, uh, I, I won that. We won that. Uh, Patrick Junta was co-counsel on that. And uh, now, uh, a year and a half later, we're still arguing over attorney's fees. Um, if you're interested in the uh, seminar, which I think you should be, unless you really know the rules of evidence, uh, then go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com for further details. Um, as a preview to that and some other things, tonight we're talking about the rules of evidence and some discussion on discovery. Follow the instructions you received when you called in, and you will appear on my dashboard. Uh, questions will be answered in the order they come in if we get to them. Uh, we have a 30-minute show time, which is 28 minutes talk time. Please tell us the status of your case and ask one question. I am broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lives blog, GTC Honors. Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in, in, in Florida. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our main number, 202-838-6345, which is not the number to call to listen to this show and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the other work we're doing free has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Let's jump into the main hot topic in foreclosure litigation. Exceptions to the rule of hearsay, and more specifically, the business records exception to the hearsay rule. Let's start with the hearsay rule. Hearsay is supposed to be excluded. It is any testimony or any information that can't be cross-examined. So if it's made by an out-of-court declarant um, uh, or it is a document, it can't be cross-examined. It's hearsay, and it's excluded unless it qualifies for one of the hearsay exceptions. The fact that it can't be cross-examined comes from our constitutional guarantee to be able to confront accusers or witnesses against us in, I believe, the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Every statement made out of court is hearsay, and the rule against hearsay means that it will not be accepted into evidence unless it otherwise qualifies for an exception. There are, of course, exceptions, and the big one is the so-called business records exception. 
Just because a document is a business record doesn't mean it can be admitted under the business record exception to the hearsay rule. The document has to have credibility, which is a topic that is lacking from most discussions and most arguments about the subject. They go directly to uh, the fine points of the rule, whether it was made uh, at or near the time of the uh, uh, of a transaction um, and made in the ordinary course of business, etc. Credibility is the real issue in exceptions to the hearsay rule. If a document lacks credibility or the foundation for authenticating it lacks credibility, then the document should not be considered an exception to the hearsay rule and should not be admitted into evidence nor considered by the trier of fact, which is to say in virtually all foreclosure cases, the judge. All documents are hearsay and may not be admitted in evidence nor considered by the judge unless the judge admits the documents into evidence under an exception to the hearsay rule. Quick word to the side here. Another way that hearsay documents get into the record and into evidence is by the homeowner or the homeowner's attorney doing nothing. If you don't raise a timely objection, the objection is waived. The document comes in. And there's even uh, oftentimes a presumption applied that everything on that document is true. <coughs> What's timely? Timely is the moment the subject is brought up. So if you have an objection to foundation, to leading, to hearsay, if you're not jumping up and raising that objection and explaining the basis of your objection, you've waived it. Biggest mistake that I see, uh, most common mistake that I see is a lawyer waits until a string of questions has been asked and then raises the objection and finds himself overruled. The reason he was overruled is that he waited too long. The question was asked, it was answered, the document came in, uh, and whatever rights there were to excluding it from evidence have been waived. So credibility is the real issue. If the documents come, for example, from the business records of a third party who is unrelated to the litigation or anyone in the litigation and who has no possible interest in the outcome, when the, uh, then the authentication process is easy enough to establish credibility. It doesn't make any difference to me to, to the source of the document, who wins in that case, then they are considered to be objective and independent. And if they have a document that's relevant to the case and they have a witness to say, yes, that is a document made in the ordinary course of business, and it was created at or near the time that 
uh, an event occurred. That's all you need. Credibility is pretty much assumed. But the closer you come to a proffered document being a self-serving piece of work produced solely for the purpose of litigation, the less the exception of business records applies until it doesn't apply at all and then must be excluded from evidence. This is the chipping process that many of you have heard me talk about. It doesn't happen all at once. You do it in discovery, you do it in motions in limine, you do it in objections, you do it in cross-examination. We gradually chip away at what appears to be the evidence structure that has been presented by the party seeking foreclosure. So if a document is coming in from a party to uh, a party who is in litigation with you, it should be considered immediately suspect uh, and ordinarily would be, but in the world, the universe of foreclosure, um, uh, the uh, application of these rules uh, sometimes can be very frustrating. But even though a judge may not be inclined to sustain your objection uh, right away, uh, if you keep raising the issue of leading foundation and hearsay, um, uh, a judge may well turn, and I've seen that happen uh, many times. So if it comes from a party, they have every reason to fabricate a document or the entries on the document to their own advantage, whereas a truly independent third party would have no reason to, uh, to fabricate anything. You would assume that a truly independent third party, would, if they had records, as far as they knew, that was the, the record of the event. Much greater authentication is required when a, par a party proffers a document that comes from the party itself. So in other words, if you get sued by a trust, for example, and don't get uh, mixed up with the difference between the trust and the trustee who is named. They like to use the name of the trustee, U.S. Bank and Wells Fargo, etc., cetera, um, to make it seem like it's a bank against the homeowner. It isn't if there's a remic trust involved. It's a trust against the homeowner. So, if a representative of the trust, which could only be the trustee, uh, assuming the trust exists, which it probably doesn't, uh, it could only be a trustee and then some party potentially appointed by the trustee uh, to keep the books. If it's coming from the party, directly or indirectly, it is a greater burden to be persuasive with a court 
that this document has credibility. The document must have been created as the result of entries made at or near the time of an actual transaction. While the robo-witness will be more than willing to say that the records, in fact, were derived from postings made at or near the time of a transaction, which, by the way, the robo-witness has no idea, but they've given him a script which uh, judges tend to accept. Uh, with the borrower, the same robo-witness, um, they're, they're willing to say that they have a uh, books and records with relation to transactions with the borrower, which will show his payments and his lack of payment. But the same robo-witness doesn't know a thing about where the money went with each payment from the homeowner. If they were a truly independent entity, they would simply be receiving money or not receiving it and then passing on the money or passing on information about the non-payment. <coughs> they will never have records about who they paid. They will never have records about who they were reporting to because in truth, services reporting to some third party who has a very real interest in the foreclosure for many reasons. So the records are incomplete as they arrive in court and therefore suffer a hit on credibility, if you point it out, since they are only a partial rendition of transactions affecting the account, like payments to the master servicer or certificate holders of a trust something that the banks don't ever want us to see. Why not? Because the payments would show the true infrastructure of fake securitization schemes, even when no, uh, no trust is mentioned as the foreclosing party. Remember, some of you will, back in 2008, the banks were denying the existence of the trusts. Over this 10-year period, we found out that that's true. They were using the trust names for purposes of making money and eventually uh, pursuing foreclosures. But in, in nearly all cases, the trust didn't exist. And in uh, all cases no matter how you construe the evidence, there was never a purchase made by the trust of any loan. So why am I pointing that out about evidence? Well, the idea in winning is not to pretend that you're going to prove something. The, the win comes from revealing the absence of evidence that should be there. So, for example, if they have an assignment in discovery, you'd want to know what kind of correspondence or agreements, purchase agreements, identifications, guarantees, or whatever was attendant to the assignment, or did they exist? You don't even have to read them. You just want to know, do they exist? And the answer is going to be no because there never was a transaction where the loan was purchased in, re in relation to that assignment. So 
in foreclosures, that's why the records are proffered as records of the servicer who are they try to portray as an independent third party. So lawyer the, the lawyers for the opposition are taking their orders from the servicer and the master servicer. The servicer has an interest in A, keeping the loan as a non-performing loan because they get higher fees for that. Second, the servicer wants foreclosure for the master servicer, who's a real party in interest, who has an interest in collecting so-called servicer advances. Without the foreclosure and subsequent sale of the property, the servicer advances are not paid to the master servicer. So the master servicer, the servicer, and others, including the trustee, um, with with the master servicer's connections to document fabrication services that enable the right document to appear at the right time in foreclosure, proceedings, then they have an interest. And if they have an interest, the point is that the hearsay exception of business records should be scrutinized much more carefully. And that's the point that should be made to the judge and hammered in wherever it is possible throughout the litigation. And I'm revisiting the whole issue of who should be made to testify in court. I think maybe the master services should be brought in. But that will be met with fierce opposition for obvious reasons. The trust doesn't exist. And the representative for the so-called master servicer, who's obviously not a master servicer if there's no trust, would need they would need to either perjure themselves or admit that the plaintiff in the foreclosure or the beneficiary in a non-judicial state does not exist and thus could not possibly own the debt note or mortgage. In that case, neither the master servicer nor the subservicer would have any business giving testimony or other evidence to the court. Although the re- their records could theoretically be used by the actual owner of the Uh, debt, but they would uh, be subject to very intense investigation and and scrutiny. So you see the issue is whether those records are the records of the trust, which is impossible if it doesn't exist, or are they the records of the master servicer being kept by the subservicer, or are they the records of the certificate holders who, by the way, on their certificates, two-thirds of the cases, the, the certificate indenture specifically states that the holder of the certificate has no interest in the debt, note, or mortgage in the so-called underlying loans, which were never purchased by the trust to begin with. Or are they the records of the subservicer who often has no legal right to act as a servicer and who has an interest in seeing the foreclosure both continue as long as possible and then get its reward 
from the master servicer when it delivers a foreclosure. So the records of the servicer are suspect because they have the goal of foreclosure. They, that is their interest. They have the goal also of the, the loan being non-performing. After all, it's been left up to them to produce the witness and the documents to get a, a foreclosure pushed through the courts. Documents from them are hearsay, and they're not records of the trust that, according to the other side, has no records, even though the investors are being paid. Well, wait a minute. If the investors are being paid, and supposedly they're being paid out of payments coming from borrowers, then the complete records would include the payment to investors or an entity of the investors, which would be the trust, which, of course, doesn't have a bank account, so they can't do that. So you want to attack the testimony and documents brought by the lawyers for the robo-witness to authenticate. You do that with prior discovery, motions to compel, motions in limine based upon their continued failure to answer, timely objections and cross-examination. Discovery is the process where you request and eventually compel the opposing party to give you information or admit certain things. When they continue to refuse to provide the identity of the owner of the debt by using vague words and descriptions and arguing that that is sufficient, you can file a motion in limine to bar them from introducing any evidence indicating the owner of the debt at trial. They can't have it both ways. And most judges, no matter where their biases lie, will agree with that. At trial, you object to the foundation because they didn't provide the information in discovery. After a few minutes of that, you'll throw the opposing attorney off track, as I will demonstrate in the seminar now postponed to February 16th which we're looking forward to seeing you at. So the theory that of, of most um, uh, defense cases in foreclosure is that whoever is seeking the foreclosure is an interloper, an intervenor, with no ownership of the debt, no contract privity with anyone, who does or did own the debt, and no authority to act for the owner of the debt. Thus, they have no business collecting, which gives rise to an action for disgorgement, which can be brought up in affirmative defenses or in a separate action. And more importantly, this lays the groundwork for your objections, and for your cross-examination. What is often the case is that the vague uh, answers or responses you receive to discovery will be contradicted by the actual exhibits 
which you should compare, by the way, when they appear in court with what was given to you in discovery. And the testimony itself will, in many cases, be in contradiction to what was previously provided in discovery. And then, of course, they're going to come up with last-minute documents, which you should object to because it was last-minute. And they could have shown it to you, and they didn't. And probably there's a court order requiring them to, to, to do so. So that's just uh, a uh, preview of what we're going to cover, uh, several of us, in a three-hour seminar on February 16th, uh, which will give you the how-tos as well as the who, what, where, and when. I look forward to seeing you then, and the West Coast boys take over, and I will be back with you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show. For free information and advice, and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.